Hello, and a very warm welcome to this special edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. Today, we are hosting a discussion with another pair of our sector champions as part of our work with the UK Ministry of Justice and the UK Africa Legal Services Spring Conference, which is taking place on the 22nd of April. And to register for this event, simply follow the link that we have provided in the podcast description. Now, in alignment with the event's key themes, we are working with pairs of leading lawyers from UK and African law firms to explore the most pressing issues affecting the most vibrant sectors where the UK and African markets most commonly interact. These sectors are international trade, telecoms, media and technology, or TMT, extractives and financial services. Today, I am joined by our sector champions for our focus on international trade. These being Nigel Boardman of Slaughter and May and Daryl Dingley of Weber Wentzel. Nigel's broad practice includes domestic and international corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, IPO, demergers, private acquisitions and disposals, private equity, public takeovers, issues of compliance in corporate governance, investigations and insolvency, restructuring, investigation, and sports law. I always like that sports law at the end, just for a bit of vibrancy in there. Now, Nigel has received a number of accolades over his distinguished career, including the Financial Times Special Achievement Award, Chambers Directory's Lifetime Achievement Award, Lawyer of the Decade Award from Financial News. He's included in Debrett's Who's Who, and he was ranked as a star performer for corporate and M&A work by Chambers in the UK and European Global Directories. Daryl specialises in competition law and has particular expertise in economics and international trade. He advises on all aspects of competition law, including merger control, cartel and other prohibited practice, investigations, exemption applications and competition law and compliance. Daryl's knowledge of competition laws extends to many African countries and regional regulators like the Comessa Competition Commission. Now, after those very, very engaging mini biographies, let's dive straight into some questions. And my first one goes to you, Daryl. Now, Africa has never been slow to create and adopt regional trade agreements, many of which have existed for decades already, such as COMESA. So, you know, we've got a big looming change on the horizon here. How do you foresee these structures interacting and adapting with the new but very big kid on the block, the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Thanks so much for that introduction. Um, just to, to say, I think, I think you, in answering this question, one needs to look at uh, one of the defining features of the African uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement, and really that it's a member-driven arrangement, and it's based on practicality and experience. Um, so that, that's a very, very important defining feature. So if one looks at, at practicality and experience, one will see that that is woven into the instruments themselves. And, um, you know, Article 18.3 um, of the agreement provides that the, the agreement won't nullify or modify or revoke any rights or ob- obligations under the pre-existing trade agreements that the state's uh, the, the member uh, the member states have with third parties, and so you know right there in the actual legal instrument itself is is effectively that um, that these trade agreements and these arrangements 
that uh, many of these member states have um, amongst themselves, um, as well as within these regional economic um, communities that they've formed, will ex- will exist in parallel um, with um, with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. So there's there's you know and, and part of this you know part of what's already in existence is a drive for economic integration on the continent. So because there's this drive towards economic integration, there's this mutual commitment to maintain these arrangements and for these arrangements to uh, to operate um, together and in, and in parallel. Um, this, though, I, mean, I must just be very clear, there are obviously lots of complications with that because you have a multiplicity of arrangements. You have lots of these different regional um, you know, economic communities. You've got the EAC, you've got ECOWAS, you've got SACU, you've got... Um, you know, uh, IGAD, you've, you've got Comisa, you've got all of these different um, different entities and all of these different trade arrangements um, that have been put in place. And that includes, you know, just commitments to, you know, the WTO, uh, commitments to EPA, which is the European Union, SADC Economic Partnership Agreement. You've got all these different arrangements and um, these overlapping membership configurations. So with with those difficulties, um, you have agencies like the UN Economic Commission for Africa, for example, that's going to support the process um, of trade liberalization and also to make sure that these existing arrangements can actually uh, work together with, um, with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. So very, very interesting times ahead, uh, regardless. And a very quick follow-up question there, Daryl. Do you think that the the decision under you know to operate under a regional agreement or the continent wide agreement is that going to be left to individual states or you've mentioned some you know supranational actors such as the, the the UN um is the decision going to be handed to them you know who my my question is it's I'm fumbling over it but it's more about where does this decision lie in actually which which uh you know, which body of rules and regulations a trade agreement will fall under in any given instance? If I understand your question correctly, there has to be, uh, I mean, they have to work together. So, in other words, um, there's going to have to be a number of negotiations and acceptable quid pro quos put in place uh, in order for these existing trade agreements um, and for the African Continental Free Trade Agreement to work in parallel and to to uh, extend in a reciprocal basis uh, to all of the member states. So, the I mean that's that's the sort of guiding principle. I think that there is a lot that's left up to the individual states, and um, this does get complicated by the fact that you know the, you know. A, a, a free trade agreement is very different, for example, to a common customs u- union um, because, the, the, say, for example, like SACU, because SACU will negotiate and ensure the harmonization um, amongst these different instruments as a block, whereas some member states will be doing this individually. 
but it is really left up mostly to individual states or the regional blocks themselves to actually ensure the harmonization. But of course, there are uh, frameworks within the agreement and there are bodies within the agreements to, um, you know, to assist with this process. So you have these various committees, for example, uh, within, you know, within the, the, within the organization, um, and that will help facilitate it. And there are ministers from, you know, these committees of senior trade officials and councils of ministers uh, that will be working towards, um, towards the harmonization. But this, this is one of the major hurdles at the moment, and it, it, it's reflected in the fact that there, you know, and accepted to some extent that there's going to be a staggered implementation process, particularly around the liberalization of tariffs, for example, and in those various schedules are very much being left up to the individual states to, um, to agree to, to put forward, but it is done within, within the committees um, of, um, you know, of, of the structure. I see. So pl- plenty more time around tables and negotiations to uh, to look forward to, but but progress nonetheless. I, I'm going to pivot over to, to Nigel now. Now, Nigel, you and I have talked previously in another podcast on the Africa Legal Channel about your history and vast experience in relation to the African continent. Now, with this in mind, would you share some of your top-level thoughts on the current state of play when it comes to Africa's involvement um, with international trade? And I'm particularly interested uh, you know, in your thoughts around what you see as the potential limiting factors on the development of African uh, international trade. A quick reality check, if you will, on the back of so much excitement and developments without making you the, the scapegoat of negativity. <laughs> Surely. Um, as you know from our previous discussion, I'm not particularly keen on talking about Africa uh, as a whole, as, as, if, as if it were one country. It is possibly the most diverse planet on, on the earth. You know, you look at it, it's about uh, one fifth of the world's land, about 16% of its population, and 2% to 3% of world GDP. Uh, it ranges from the fourth highest mountain in the world in Kilimanjaro down to uh, the Danakil Depression, one of the lowest points on Earth. It ranges from uh, deserts at either end Sahara and Kalahari through somewhere like the Odzala National Park, which is one of the most dense forests in the world. So it's an em- enormously diverse area geographically. Uh, physically, uh, it's split into 55 states as members of the African Union. Uh, 16 of these are entirely landlocked. And that's out of about uh, less than 40, I think, total landlocked states across the globe. Uh, six sovereign islands. Um, Africa is home to 1.2 billion people. But a third of these live in only three countries. You've got Nigeria with 206 million, Ethiopia with 115, and Egypt with 102 million. And then at the other end of the spectrum, You've got five states uh, with less than a million people each um, and 17 nations across Africa have a population of less than three million. Uh, And this is as a result of colonial history and divisions which are arbitrary. Uh, Turning to the colonial history, you've got 17 former British colonies in Africa 
which plus Rwanda and Mozambique make up the Commonwealth. You've got um, 17 mainly Francophone countries in Ohada, uh, the common system of business law based in West Africa. And you've got 11 countries which have Arabic as their primary language or one of their primary languages. So it's a really, really mixed area. And that's borne out by the economic differences. You take Nigeria with a GDP of uh, just over 450 billion, which is the same as the United Arab uh, Emirates, for example. You take Egypt with a GDP of 375 billion, which is, say, the same as Portugal. South Africa, which is about the same level as Singapore with over 300 billion. dollars of GDP. And then the next one is half of that, which is Algeria, with under 150 billion. And the bottom 13 nations have a GDP of less than 4 billion. Uh, And the same is true if you look at GDP per capita, where of the 25 countries in the world with GDP per capita of less than $1,000 a year, 20 are in Africa. So you're getting an enormous spread in geography, in politics, in political circumstance, in size and in economies. And even within that, you then have further splits in the importance of fossil fuel to a number of the economies. Nigeria is eighth largest uh, oil producer in the world. Algeria is 10th. Libya is 12th. And those lead to a significant uh, distortion of trade for those areas. Um, And against that background, it's not really surprising, I think, that we do see uh, barriers between countries. And what is really striking when you look at the trade figures is that intra-European trade, that is exports from one European country to another, amount to 68% of all European exports. In Asian countries, that number is 59%. And in Africa, it is 17%. So of the approximately 450 billion plus of goods and services imported and 570 billion uh, of goods exported by Africa in 2019, only 17% of those went from one African country to another. And the uh, the agreements that Daryl's talking about are really aimed at getting that number up and having a significant impact through inc- increasing intra-Africa trade. And it's a crucial, crucial step to take. But then why is it that it's so low in the first place? And why do we need all these agreements? Well, I think there are probably eight significant factors that commentators have identified. Uh, The first of those is weak infrastructure. And this is in part an inheritance from colonial times. Uh, Colonial powers didn't want trade to run between one of their colonies and the colony of a competitor country. So what infrastructure they put in place went down to the sea and not across land. There's only two places that I'm aware of in the world where you can see one capital city from another capital city, and one of those is Brazzaville and Kinshasa. 
and yet there is no way of getting from Brazzaville to Kinshasa easily. Uh, the Congo sits between you. There's no bridge, no tunnel, uh, not an easy ferry service. And that is typical of a lot of places across Africa. Um, uh, bureaucracy is the second real problem. Uh, and this, again, is due to regulations partly driven by colonial past. Uh, one study said that if you took a lorry in South Africa carrying provisions for delivery to supermarkets in neighboring countries, it could carry, it could need to carry as many as 1,600 documents in order to be able to meet customs requirements for that lorry's deliveries. Another example is that on the Rwanda-Tanzanian border, lorry drivers have to wait on average 72 hours to get across, even though those countries are within one of the economic groups that um, uh, Daryl mentioned. Third, tariff barriers. And tariffs are one of the taxes which is most easily collected. And uh, for some countries, it can account for about 25% of federal government income. So it's a really significant problem getting rid of tariffs in terms of how you adjust individual economies and how you get the benefits. Um, and to give an example, in SADC, a tariff on a Chinese T-shirt uh, could be 45% of the value. That's making a big difference to federal revenues, but it's also making a big difference to the cost of goods coming in. Fourth, logistics. Transport across Africa is mainly by lorry. Um, of the 55 countries in the African Union, only South Africa has a significant rail network, and that is 21,000 kilometers. And to put that in context, this compares with 150,000 kilometers in the USA or 16,000 kilometers in the rather small United Kingdom. Only six other African countries, Egypt, Sudan, Algeria, the DRC, Nigeria and Mozambique, have more than 3,000 kilometers of rail. Roads are of varied quality. Only a quarter of African roads are paved. And when the Centre for International Private Enterprise surveyed 1,800 Nigerian micro, small and medium enterprises about how to improve trade, their two most frequent requests were better roads and better access to finance. And for those who've tried flying across Africa, often we find that flying via Europe is a quicker route than flying just through Africa to get from one African destination to another. Moving on from logistics, at number five, bribery. One of the consequences of all these factors about bureaucracy and so on is petty corruption. Over 80% of lorry drivers crossing the Kenyan-Tanzanian border, when surveyed, admitted to paying bribes. The Centre for International Private Enterprise calculated in Nigeria that corruption in the Nigerian ports in a year had an annual cost 
of $1.95 billion to government revenue and $8.15 billion to the private sector. Sixth, finance. As already mentioned, the Nigerian uh, micro, small and medium-sized enterprises stated that this was a big problem for them. And before doing this podcast, I spoke to one of the leading trade banks about the provision of finance across Africa and was told that it is almost impossible without external support to get bank financing as opposed to capital markets financing, which could last for five years. So you're really struggling to get long-term finance in place. Uh, The World Bank has described Africa as the most underpenetrated payments market in the world. And this has been made worse by the withdrawal of many U.S. and international banks over fears of heavy U.S. fines for a dollar clearing for customers who turn out uh, not to, uh, to be on a U.S. blacklist. And if one looks just at a bank like Citibank, which used to be one of the dominant banks across Africa, and how it is withdrawn from so much of the market, uh, you can see the problems of finance across Africa. Uh, Sixth, sorry, seventh, uh, political instability and physical security. Although Africa is really much improved in safety terms, now that it's not the centre of proxy wars between the East and the West. There are still countries uh, where uh, you get a level of insecurity which makes trade difficult. Um, Interestingly enough, a country like Rwanda, though, now ranks as more secure than the UK in the Global Security Index. But you've got countries like parts of the Sahel and Somalia, of course, which are difficult countries from a security point of view. And the final point I'd look at on um, uh, why trade is difficult across Africa is the lack of processing or manufacturing capability. So a primary produce has to be exported to a country capable of undertaking processing. If you think that 58% of all African exports by value are of minerals or oil and gas, and the processing capability isn't onshore. Again, going back to a historical legacy, that delivers a real blow to trying to develop international trade across Africa. I think, Daryl, those are the main points I'd make around African trade as 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 the limiting factors. Uh, and Nigel. Uh... To dive in here, I couldn't have asked for a more comprehensive uh, response there. And there's so much to to mull over and and, and think over with those statistics and the the changes that we've seen. Um, You know, one that really stood out there was just the the paved road situation. You know, we we talk about lofty uh, uh, regional economic communities and pan-African free trade agreements, and yet, I think it was 15% of of roads in total being paved. It does remind one of just how much progress is needed, but also can be made as simply as ensuring one says as simply. It's often not as simple as as paving of roads. So thanks again. So much to think over there. Um, 
Daryl, to turn back to you on a, a slightly more technical point for us to chew over here, and it relates to rules of origin and their potential as key to the success of the continental free trade area. And I know this is a topic you're keen to dig into. So would you would you enlighten us on this one? Yeah, I'll, I'll enlighten us. I hopefully won't get. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it uh, keep it simple. And explain it in, in for this in, simple in podcaster. Please do, Daryl, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it can get quite complicated. Um, I suppose maybe just starting at. Uh, I'm going to start at the end, actually, uh, of the let's call it the story. I mean, the end of the story is that, as most people know that are probably listening to this um, podcast, is that you know everything became became operational and uh, trading began on the first uh, of January this year. So in, in order for, for one to actually trade under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, you need to have rules of origin, and, and those need to be agreed, um, and there also needs to be obviously a, a level of, um, of acceptance around um, the tariff uh, schedules that are going to be applied. So, so there needs to be accepted tariff offers, agreed uh, rules of origin um, of very, very uh, important um, building blocks for for this free trade you know agreement to to actually operate. So it, it goes to the opera the operations of of the agreement. So so what do I mean by that? I mean I, what I mean is that in order for it to operate uh, and in order for people or countries or producers effectively to to enjoy tra- tariff preferences. It, you need to have a, uh, rules of origin because they those rules of origin ensure that products that are traded within the market actually originate from within the continents. And as I said, and therefore you are subject to these um, tariff preferences. Because if you didn't have um, these rules, you know, absent these rules of origin, you could have, for example, producers in non-participating, you know, third um, uh party countries, they could simply, you know, channel their goods through a member state in order to obtain better market market access, in other words, lower and, you know, in some cases, zero tariff levels by virtue of, of that, that country being a member. And that really undermines the very purpose, you know, of the African Continental Free um, tra- Trade Agreement, which is to promote production. Um, you know, and you know, of, of producers in the member states. I mean, just you know, picking up on on some of Nigel's comments. I mean, that's really what the key the key driver behind um, the, you know this free trade agreement is to encourage local production. It's to to encourage intra Africa trade because so much of what's produced here is exported and not traded. Within within Africa, and so if you want to uplift, uh, you know, the welfare of of Africans, then they they need to start um, helping themselves. And you know, I, I use the, the term Africa needs to help Africa. I mean, you know, this is what's driving, um, you know, what's going to drive economic growth in Africa going forward. You know, is uh, is intra is intra Africa trade and encouraging producers to produce. In African countries, and 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 that's obviously why the rules of origin are are so important. Um, so so what the rules of origin do? It really calculates how much value addition or processing 
must take place within a country for that product to be considered originating from that country. So it's an, it's an economic value uh, proposition or question, as it were. Um, and, um, you know, with, with, um, you know, with this, uh, you know, you can obviously understand that there may be a lot of complications in terms of um, developing a suitable methodology and all the various countries agreeing exactly how this is going to be achieved. Um, because many products, um, you know, that are, uh, that are produced are transformed and, and they have various inputs into, into the production of those um, products. And, it's, and, and some products also may be jointly produced in, for example, two different countries by two different manufacturers. And, 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 and products also traverse many dif different countries. And so you need to work out this methodology that looks at, um, you know, and, and there's different ways of doing it. There's, you know, a percentage-based criteria. There are, you know, technical specific processing criteria. There are what we call the change in classification criteria. These are, these are the typical methodologies that are used for um, developing what, what are these preferential uh, rules uh, of origin. Now, in the, in the case of um, uh, the African Consent of Free Trade Agreement, there have been a lot of negotiations and debates around that. But what's important to, to note is that there are, uh, at this point, um, uh, about 19% of the um, tariff lines, um, the specific rules of origin have not been um, finalized. So there's a lot of outstanding issues around the methodologies in particular as to how these are going to be determined. And they include very important um, uh, 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 areas or sectors of, of many African countries, and they include things like wheat and flour and fish products and dairy products and um, motor vehicles, for example, um, clothing, textiles, um, many, many lines within the food industries, tobacco products, so, so a lot of debate about this, and you know, um, I, I mean, just take one example. I mean, if we focus just a, a little bit on on motor vehicles, for example, I mean, there are a number of uh, countries within Africa where the motor vehicle manufacturing sector is extremely um, important to them. So, countries like South Africa, for example, um, which does a lot of motor vehicle manufacturing but also countries like uh, you know Egypt and Kenya Nigeria Morocco Tunisia they all have um, man, you know uh, automotive manufacturing sectors and uh, you know there are uh, lots of non-originating parts that are used in the manufacture of those vehicles um, and the question of um, you know, knockdown kits for example if a whole knockdown kit is imported to manufacture a vehicle, does that and and it's then put together in a country? Would that vehicle then you know be determined uh, uh, you know under the rules to have originated from within that country? And and this is I suppose also where strategic interests play a role because obviously the countries that even where they're just building uh, vehicles from kits would want to have some sort of recognition that um, these um, vehicles originate uh, within the country and then can be. Um, traded under the preferential uh, trading arrangement. 
So, so these are these are some of the difficulties um, that are that are being faced, and also some of the definitions. For example, um, you know, what it, what does substantial transformation mean? Um, and until such time as these rules of origin have been agreed, you won't have a fully operational um, a free trade um, arrangement or agreement. And so it's imperative that this year um, they try and put that in place. Well, Daryl, as someone who has been thoroughly enlightened with your simplified description of a technical issue, I think I'm going to give you the the Luddite badge of approval on that one. Um, And I think our listeners will agree. Really, a lot of a big thank you on uh, simplifying that topic. Um, So many different layers once again, and so much to still be defined, determined, and negotiated. So this topic is. It really, you know, like you say, it may well have gone live on January 1st, but so much uh, still to be done and and worked over. So definitely a topic I think that we'll be coming back to time and time again. Nigel, back to you for our next one here. Now, I'm keen to explore a specific example of post-Brexit trading opportunity with you, and this being the recent UK-Kenya trade agreement. Now, kind of a two-parter here. Is this agreement, to your mind, a sign of things to come? And if so, how quickly do you think we'll see similar agreements springing up? And a deeper dive on top of that and a look to the future. I'm keen to source your views on the potential for greater adoption of of common laws being enacted across multiple states to further ease free trade. Now, OHADA, the Organization for Harmonization of uh, Business Law in Africa, that's the Anglophone pronunciation anyway, being a great example and advocate for such, is this something that you think we'll be seeing more of and, and should be encouraging? So the two party there, let's talk Kenya and then let's talk Ohada. Sure. Um, and to put it in context, African imports into the UK account for about 2.5% of all UK imports. And UK imports into Africa account for just a, a smidgen more at about 2.6% of all African imports. and. There are eight uh, sub-Saharan African countries which have the UK in the top 10 exporters. Uh, Rwanda, Mauritius, Seychelles, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Mozambique, Kenya, and South Africa. And you'll see that most of those are uh, former co- colonies and members of the Commonwealth. Um, Post-Brexit, UK has signed 13 trade agreements with African partners. But these are really mainly rollovers uh, from uh, EU trading arrangements, which uh, fell away when we left the EU. So our problem was that we had trading agreements with international partners through the EU. And as we left the EU, those ceased to apply. So these are replacement agreements. Um, uh, In general, uh, well, they, they fall into two types. In some cases, we did a short-form agreement, which only lists the changes from the EU agreements. Uh, And in other cases where the partner wanted it, we do a full replication of the agreement. So some are very short, some are longer. They both cover the same ground, one by incorporating by reference the old EU trade agreements. In the case of Kenya, it's a long-form agreement. Kenya is a middle-income country. 
uh, because for uh, the least developed countries, the UK generally offers uh, imports to the UK free of all quotas and tariffs to everything but arms is the is the quotation. So uh, it's not quite the same for Kenya as a middle-income country. It, uh, interestingly, in 2019, uh, the UK exported 800 million uh, pounds worth of goods and services to Kenya, split almost equally between goods and services, and imported from Kenya 600 million pounds worth predominantly of goods, but some services as well. Kenya is the UK's 68th largest export market, with about 0.1% of the market, and the 71st largest source of imports, also at about 0.1%. But uh, the UK market is important to Kenya because it accounted for 43% of its vegetable exports and 9% of its cut flowers. Uh, so uh, in certain segments, the UK is a very significant part of the market. It was therefore really important to replace the EU agreement with a UK-Kenya agreement. The EU agreement had been with the whole of the EAC, um, the East African community. Uh, but this agreement is only with Kenya. Uh, the other members of the East African community are free to join it, but they're also least developed nations, so they get the overriding tariff benefits from being least developed as well. Under the agreement, the UK commits to provide immediate duty-free and generally quota-free um, access to goods exported from Kenya. And these historically are mainly coffee, cut flowers, tea, tobacco, fish, vegetables and spices. And Kenya, in return, commits to the gradual liberation of tariffs on most goods exported from the UK mainly machinery, mechanical appliances, equipment, parts, vehicles, and pharmaceuticals. Uh, but the, uh, and this reflects the arrangement that existed with the EU. But there are um, six significant differences from the EU agreement, which I'll just run through very quickly. Uh, the first is that there was a quota in the EU agreement for tuna loins, uh, and the number has come down because it only applies to UK, so a smaller tonnage of tuna loins can be imported into the UK. Second, um, we removed the lower price trigger on sugar imports, which had ever, never been used and wasn't considered to be helpful anymore, which was a floor protection mechanism for the EU. Third, because the Cotonou agreements, which replaced the Lomé agreements, you'll recall, and deal with the political framework for uh, economic trade, uh, no longer applies uh, because the UK uh, was a signatory through the EU. Um, we've had to import the Cotonou agreement terms around democratic principles, the rule of law, etc., are replicated in the agreement. Fourth, uh, it sets a five-year transition uh, for um, extension of the free trade agreement services. So there is a five-year window before Kenya has to uh, start liberalizing services. Uh, fifth, um, 
it leaves out the financial uh, assistance aspects, which are only relevant to least developed economies uh, because they don't apply to Kenya. And sixth, as I've already said, other uh, EAC countries can join the agreement uh, if they want to by signing up to a protocol. So that gives you a flavour for how the Department for International Trade is moving forward to replace, with minor modifications, the uh, existing trade agreements that we had through our membership of the EU. Moving on from that and picking up your second question on um, the Organisation for Harmonisation of Laws, <clears throat> I think that it is a real missed opportunity so far that whilst um, the French former colonies, by and large, uh, with one or two additions, have managed to adopt an integrated business law. Uh, the former UK colonies and members of the Commonwealth have failed to do that. And I think it's a real missed opportunity because they all started with the same legal framework. And best practice would, would be so much stronger across so many more countries. And it would make it much easier to operate in trade. And when you hear of the nine uh, uniform acts which underpin OHADA, you see how sensible it would be to have common systems if you want to improve that 17% figure of intra-African trade. Those uniform acts cover general commercial law, companies and economic interest groups, secured transactions, debt resolution, insolvency, arbitration, harmonization of accounting, contracts for the carriage of goods, and cooperatives companies law. So you can see that it makes sense if you're going to try and increase trade, that you have commonality of legal systems, both sides of both borders. And I would really like to see the Ministry of Justice take a lead in getting a system of law, which could well be based on something like the South African Companies Law, which is one of the most modern and effective legal structures there is um, in the globe, not just in Africa. Nigel, thank you so much for another comprehensive overview of a, a very, very interesting uh, and evolving situation, once again filled with, with opportunity, it sounds, and a, a good nudge to the Ministry of Justice there on what could be a very interesting and and necessary step. Daryl, a final question for you. Now, to my mind, most press and analysis on the AFCFTA has focused on the free movement of goods and services. And in fact, all of our discussion thus far has principally focused on, on goods and services. But what about people? What's the current state of play when it comes to free movement of persons under the AFCFTA? I mean, will we be seeing a European Union scenario when it comes to free movement or a tighter or looser iteration of this? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, it's a good question. Um, and why has there been so little focus on the movement of people? I mean, I think that everyone who's involved in this area and who's interested in in uh, success of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement would say, like, would, would, would probably support the view that, you know, the movement of capital, uh, you know, is 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 critical to the success and similarly i think people would say well the movement of people 
is critical to the success of um, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement because you need people to be able to to move from one country into another to set up businesses to invest in those in those countries. Um, and, and you also need um, where, where there are shortages of skills and skilled people are needed. You need those skilled people to be able to move freely uh, within the free trade area to, to, to ensure the success uh, of what's envisaged, this integration, this, this inter-Africa trade. So, uh, you know, just like cap, movement of capital is so, is so important for the success, the movement of people. Is, is so important. But, you know, the, the story around this um, goes way back, and, and you can go way back to, you know, to 1991 when the African um, Union effectively agreed and adopted a principle that the free movement of people and the rights of residents and, and, uh, and establishment is, is absolutely critical for the success of the African economic um, community. And, um, you know, just to quote from uh, the uh, Economic Commission for Africa, you know, a guy called um, David Luke, who, who said that the freedom of movement of people, capital, goods and services are the aspired four basic freedoms which make up the con African continental and regional integration agendas. And um, if you look at the fifth phase of the uh, Abuja Treaty, which is expected to be realized by, by 2023, um, they are looking to achieve this free movement of, of, of people. And there's a, there's a protocol on the, on, uh, in relation to the treaty for the establishment of the free movement of persons and the rights of residents and the rights of establishment. And that, was, uh, that actually came into existence, that protocol, in January of 2018, and there was this, this quite a significant sort of implementation roadmap um, towards uh, achieving that. But it's only at, at this point in time been, been in fact ratified by 15 member states. I understand. Um, uh, sorry, it's been, it, yeah, it's only been ratified by 15 member states. Although 32 member states have actually signed it. Um, but it's uh, you know it's very very slow uh, off uh, off the mark and I, and I think what people are looking to is currently under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement there there is some recognition that the free movement of of people is critical for the success um, um, you know of the agreement and but unfortunately that's that's founded under the Protocol on Services and really it's focused focused a lot on the movement. In relation to investment and and service delivery, but it doesn't have, you know, in my mind, uh, we haven't. It hasn't gone far enough to achieve what the EU has, which is really what you want is a protocol that allows for people to live, work, provide a service in another country, you know, within the member states under the same or similar conditions as a citizen of that country. I mean, that's. That's really what what you need in order to achieve this this full integration, and for allow for allowing these businesses to establish themselves in these countries, and for that economic uplift that that is um, is so needed. And I think the problem behind all of this really is that the um, a lot of uh, member states are clinging onto uh, you know uh, 
this view that the movement of people is going to somehow undermine sovereignty. It's going to also create security threats um, in in those countries, and it's it's and I think also there there is you know from a policy perspective they're trying to look inwardly towards creating jobs for for citizens and so trying to protect uh, certain sectors and industries from the influx potentially of um, you know of foreigners who would be seen to be taking away jobs so there's that kind of sentiment that that also exists and I think until we get over these blocks these these um, these and these hurdles towards achieving that freer movement it's it's going to hinder I think the success um, of the of the agreement. Uh, Daryl, I'm 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 in real agreement with that. I think it's your last point there really really resonates in that. I think we are still seeing um, there's this great willingness of, of of enjoying yes free movement of of services and and goods, um, but people maybe if it relates to the provision of services. Um, and until we see a greater acceptance that this isn't an underminer of sovereignty, of, of, of stability and so on, that is going to be a hindrance. But look, there's, there's progress. You know, there is ratification occurring of the Abuja Treaty, albeit at a slow pace. These things don't happen overnight, especially when you're facing, uh, some degree of prejudice um you know the the you've got the the instruments of state which tend to move slowly <laughs> paired with prejudicial attitudes you know that doesn't breed um lightning fast decisions but i still think it's a journey and one that we have started now Gentlemen, that does bring us to time. Um, so I would like to thank you both for joining me today for what has been a riveting discussion. And once again, I will say, if you, our listeners, have also enjoyed this conversation, be sure to register for that April 22nd event, the UK Africa Spring Conference, brought to us by the UK Ministry of Justice with Africa Legal as the event partner. And again, Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. And also a very big thank you to all of our listeners. If you would like to peruse the back catalogue of the Africa Legal Podcast, we are available on all major podcast channels, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So without further ado, I have been Tom Pearson, and this has been a special edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs>